This podcast is brought to you by the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges. In 2007, the Blavatnik Family Foundation, in collaboration with the Academy, founded a series of prizes, the Blavatnik Awards for Young Scientists, that have been given out ever since here in the United States, in Israel, and in the United Kingdom. And these prizes really aim to do something different from other awards. You see, many prestigious honors given out in the sciences, up to and including the Nobel Prizes, are basically lifetime achievement awards given to great scientists towards the end of their careers. The Blavatnik Awards, instead, are given to scientists who are doing especially promising work at the beginning of their careers, as postdoctoral students or new professors, exactly when a boost in recognition and funding is often most needed in order to turn that promising work into the kind of breakthrough that might win someone a Nobel Prize as their career is winding to a close. And over this past decade, these awards have highlighted groundbreaking work in a wide variety of disciplines, from engineering to medicine to particle physics to zoology. Really, the whole range of scientific endeavor. Today on the podcast is the first of two episodes that are going to look at work done by recent Blavatnik Award regional winners and finalists to help address two of the most pressing issues facing the world today. First, climate change and all its myriad effects on our planet. And second, the rise of hyper-aggressive infectious diseases, such as the Zika virus. These are the kind of huge, multifaceted global problems that can only be addressed by truly innovative thinking. And so they're being worked on by exactly the kind of brilliant and forward-looking young scientists that these awards were created to honor. In today's episode, we're going to hear from scientists who are working on perhaps the most controversial scientific subject in the country, climate change. Now, when I say controversial, I mean in media and in politics. Among scientists, there's very little controversy at all. What's happening with the world's climate right now is weird and scary. Today, we're going to look at the work of three scientists, all recent Blavatnik Award regional honorees, who are all working to improve our understanding of how climate change will affect the world's ecosystems. Specifically, they're each taking very different approaches to working with computer models, with an idea towards making us prepared for what the future will bring, and maybe even giving some hope that the effects of climate change can be lessened, or maybe even turned around. But first, a little background. Basically, our understanding of climate change comes down to this. For a long time now, the Earth has cycled through a series of ups and downs in global temperature. Cold glacial periods, sometimes called ice ages, and warm interglacial periods. Here's Dr. Nicholas Young from Columbia University, a geologist who won a Blavatnik Award in 2015. We're currently in an interglacial, so this is a warm period. But the Earth's climate has moved between interglacials today and then glacial periods, which is about 20,000 years ago. And over the last 800,000 years to a million years, uh, this cycle occurs about every 100,000 years. When we come out of a cold time, the glacial, temperatures spike up, and then we reach a maximum temperature, and then we slowly start the decline back into the next glacial period, the next cold period. 
And so ultimately that right there is controlled by the relation between the sun and the earth. What we're measuring now though, over the past few decades is different. And to a lot of people, it's awfully scary. What's unique about the current interglacial that we're in right now is that we've hit that peak temperature roughly about 10,000 years ago. If you were to go just by orbital forcing, that tells you that we should be declining ever so slowly into a glacial. But it seems like that we're sort of starting to overpower that forcing and instead are forcing the climate to go into warm times, extended warm times, when in fact we should be diving into a glacial. And so the question for most of the scientific community is not, is this happening? But rather, what will be the effects of this happening? How can we accurately predict what the future will look like in an altered climate? Here's Dr. Young again, this time speaking from the podium at a symposium for recent Blavatnik Award honorees held here at the Academy this past July. This is from the United Nations Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change Report. So they put this out every roughly six-ish years to give policymakers an idea on what is climate and associated Earth systems going to do over the next X number of years. And so what you're looking at here are computer simulations. So business as usual is if we keep doing what we're doing and pumping roughly the same amount of carbon dioxide uh, into the atmosphere, we can maybe expect something around uh, 45 centimeters of sea level rise by AD 2100. And then the worst case scenario is if we really ramp up CO2 production, you're of course gonna get much more ice sheet and glacier melt and maybe somewhere around 80 centimeters. But you'll notice that these predictions are bounded by pretty large error bars. And those error bars, the accuracy and consistency of currently available computer models, is exactly what we're going to talk about today. Here's Dr. William Anderegg, an ecologist formerly of Princeton University and now of the University of Utah, who won a Blavatnik Award in 2016. For the historical period, these models all agree and they do relatively well against the data that we have. But if you kind of draw a line at about today, say 2015, 2017, and look forward, these models look like spaghetti shot out of a cannon, right? That by the end of the century, these models diverge massively. Uh, they don't agree on the magnitude or even the sign of carbon dioxide fluxes. And the range of this is, is just enormous. And the accuracy of these computer modeled predictions have all kinds of consequences for how we plan for the future, how we're going to preserve natural resources, and also how we're going to preserve nature. Here's Dr. Robert Anderson from City College of New York, a campus of the City University of New York, a zoologist who was a Blavatnik Award finalist in 2011. You know, people, people are very interested in to what degree current national parks and other and protected area networks are sufficient to, to you know, to contain a, a large proportion of our biodiversity, not only now, but into the future. Because for several decades, you know, the parks and reserve systems were designed, you know, thinking about a static environment and the idea of preservation, right? Um, but because the world is not static, our reserve system cannot just be designed for today, it needs to be designed to the, to the future. 
And that question, how to accurately predict the future so that we can plan for it effectively, is what our three featured scientists today are each trying to answer. And interestingly, they're coming at this question from three very different perspectives. To start with, Dr. Anderegg's team is trying to accurately model the future of one of the most important kinds of ecosystems on the planet, our forests. If we care about, uh, in essence, the future of Earth's ecosystems broadly at, at a regional or continental scale, uh, forests are the big players. They support the vast majority of, of diversity of species, and um, they're huge players in the water and carbon cycles. The impacts of climate and climate change on forests are really uh, manifold, there's a lot of them, and we've started to see them play out already in the past decade or two. Uh, the question really is, is what's, what's the future going to hold? There is a whole range of options from a fairly healthy set of forests uh, to massive forest loss and dieback, and that's, um, that's what we're racing to understand. And probably the main reason that the future of forests is so hard to predict is that forests are made out of trees. And trees have an interestingly ambivalent response to climate change. On one hand, rising temperatures hurt trees. First, because trees need water, and rising global temperatures cause droughts. And second, because two of the main killers of trees are insects and bacteria, both of which can often range further and stay alive for more of the year as temperatures rise. But on the other hand, trees love carbon dioxide. They breathe it in the way we breathe oxygen. And CO2 is, by definition, made more abundant by the pollution that causes man-made climate change. Here's Dr. Anderegg at the podium at that same event we heard Dr. Young speaking at earlier. Now, forests stand at this interesting tension point scientifically. And what we're racing to understand, there's this fundamental scientific challenge, is where and when each of these two effects will dominate. Dr. Anderegg and his team are trying to find the answer to this question by studying the effects of climate change on trees at a variety of scales and in a variety of situations, both in the lab and in the field. We tried to build all of these into computer and mathematical tools and models of um, how trees pipe water, how they take up carbon, and ultimately the goal is to incorporate these into our global models of ecosystems that um, are part of the large-scale climate models. Now, some of this work comes down to a better understanding of the basic physiology of trees, which we actually know a lot less about than you might think. To learn how, we're going to digress for a moment into the subject of stomata. These are microscopic pores in the surface of leaves, and almost all plants have them and use them to exchange gas with the atmosphere around them, basically to breathe. These are absolutely fundamental to the functioning of plants, and therefore really to all living things on Earth, because all of us get our energy from plants in one way or another. And yet, some of the most basic things about the way they work are still not understood. And this misunderstanding is making it very hard to answer other questions about how tree physiology might be affected by anything, including rising temperature. Every single 
molecule that all of us eat for food, uh, for, for land crops, passes through these stomata. About two-thirds of the rain that falls on Earth's surface comes out of these stomata. Uh, and so these tiny pores on leaves have enormous leverage on weather, on climate, on food production. And we don't know how they work. What we've been working on in the, the absence of this perfect mechanistic understanding is to turn to evolution for a guide. What uh, a large chunk of the field has done is has said, how should stomata behave in order to maximize their evolutionary fitness? So what would be the optimal stomatal behavior from an evolutionary perspective? If a plant wants to win in evolution, how should its stomata work? Dr. Anderegg's team has suggested that these existing models are ineffective because they don't take into account reasons other than perfect efficiency that a plant might evolve a particular stomatal design. Uh, so we suggested, let's propose an alternate theory that's based around game theory where you, you maximize your profit. So plants can steal each other's water and the plant that's best at stealing and best at growing uh, in a variable environment wins evolutionarily. It turns out this different optimization is most important during the scenarios we care about for climate change. It's, it makes the largest difference when the soil is dry and when the atmosphere is hot and dry. Uh, and so this is, this is useful because this is what we want to be able to predict when and where these tipping points will happen and when ecosystems might crash and, and die off. Um, so this is pretty exciting. I, I think this tells us that we're on to something uh, interesting and important in how these stomatal pores are responding to their environment. This work is only the tip of the iceberg, though, because what we really want to know is not how an individual pore or an individual leaf or even an individual tree will respond to climate change, but rather a whole forest. And that's a much more complex question. The, the final piece is we're now in the process of scaling this up into to global models. And we've, we've started to implement this into the, the GFDL model at Princeton. Uh, and it seems to have pretty substantial effects on the, the exchanges of carbon and water from the land surface. And so we're still exploring what does this mean and how does this change our future predictions uh, of ecosystems. Dr. Anderson's team is exploring similar questions. But instead of trees, they're looking at animals. How exactly will rising temperatures affect where and how they're able to live? This is an important question on several levels. First, of course, because we care about the animals we share the planet with for their own sake, but also because the lives, ranges, and habitats of animals are inextricably linked to the lives of people. And this happens in all kinds of ways that might not be immediately apparent. For instance, consider the mosquito. The mosquito species Plasmodium falciparum transmits malaria by biting people. Now, this is a tropical insect. It can't live any place where the temperature dips below 68 degrees Fahrenheit for a significant part of the year. Therefore, malaria is a tropical disease. But if the global temperature were to rise significantly, whole new parts of the world would become susceptible to the spread of malaria because all of a sudden these mosquitoes could live there. And this is one small example among millions. Understanding how climate change will affect where different animal species live is crucial to getting a complete understanding of how rising global temperatures will affect our own lives. 
Here's Dr. Anderson. I would say our bread and butter right now is um, modeling species, geographic distributions or ranges, and um, integrating that with genetic information and uh, making projections uh, for future range shifts. You know, our ultimate goals are being able to reconstruct how the species got there and how their ranges have changed over glacial cycles, and also to be able to predict what will happen to their ranges into the future. You know, does the species have the capacity to reproduce fast enough for these uh, populations to expand and, and move with the changing climate and the changing suitability? So will they be able to track climate as fast as the climate will move? Now, as with trees, there's a surprising amount we still don't know about the animals that we share this planet with. Starting, honestly, with what they are. We think of exploration and discovering new animals as a thing of the past, but the truth is that science is still discovering new animals all the time. And this is not just bugs, this is not just viruses, even vertebrates. For example, just a few years ago, a medium-sized carnivore uh, was described from the cloud forest of the northern Andes. And even in cases where we know that a particular species exists, we often know far less than you might think about exactly where and how they live. Many, if not most animals, move around a lot in search of food or because of a change in the seasons. And we know a lot less than we should about exactly who goes where and when and why. This is partially because there are so many different kinds of animals in the world, but partially also because of how we gather that data, which often has more to do with the migratory habits of biologists than those of the animals they're studying. The places that we have aren't necessarily representative of all the places that the species really can live because biologists have gone you know, to some places and not to others. We have huge spatial gaps, geographic gaps. But in addition to the gaps, the places that we have gone you know, are not, are not random. They are not representative themselves because people tend to follow rivers or follow roads as access points. Um, and those, those places that have been sampled, you know, they have particular environmental characteristics, and, which means that we have a biased sample of all the places that the species can be found. And these gaps in the data are exactly why we need computer models. Dr. Anderson and his team are building new models and algorithms that use what we do know about animal movements to accurately estimate what we don't. Here he is from the podium. There's a correlative approach to modeling the ranges of species. And we use occurrence records for species, environmental data uh, in, a, in a grid map, and there are various algorithms available to form a model of the species niche requirements that then can be projected to geography to identify the areas that are suitable for the species. With all of this information, we can estimate the actual distributional changes, the actual changes in the range of the species. And in their work to create these models, Dr. Anderson's team actually ended up helping to develop a whole new software platform called Wallace, which can now be used by others who are researching similar questions. And what we ended up doing um, was creating a new program that we hope will be able to grow and respond to these conflicts. So, in an attempt to understand the future effects of climate change, Dr. Anderson's team is modeling the future of small mammal species. And Dr. Anderegg is doing something similar with the future of trees. But what about the underlying models 
that this work is based on. The models of climate itself. Exactly how much is global temperature poised to rise and how fast? If those assumptions are inaccurate, everything else being done in this space is going to be built on false premises. And that's the question Dr. Young's team is tackling. They do this by tracking the movement of the most massive physical manifestations of global climate change. The giant ice sheets that cover the Arctic and Antarctic. We reconstruct in the past how big or small ice sheets were at any particular time. And ultimately, we feed those numbers to people who use computer models to predict what that ice sheet might do in the future. And so if that computer model, if it does a really bad job at recreating what that ice sheet looked like in the past, which is provided by the sorts of measurements that I use, um, then we know something's wrong with the model and there's probably the reason for us to maybe doubt its projection for sort of future ice sheet behavior. Now, as you might imagine, Finding conclusive physical evidence of something that happened tens of thousands of years ago is by no means easy. But the evidence is there if you know where to look. At the edge of an ice sheet or glacier, as long as that ice body is relatively stable, it piles up a lot of debris at its snout. So at the very edge of the glacier, it produces uh, what looks like now is a hill. It's basically a hill of rubble. And so but you can trace these hills of, of rubble across the landscape. And so they mark the former position of an ice sheet or a glacier. And what we do is we look for giant boulders that are sitting on top of these, these hills of sediment. And we use a specific technique where we can take a sample from that rock. We can extract a certain isotope, in this case beryllium-10, now, because we know the yearly rate at which beryllium is produced in the rock, then it becomes a simple division problem. This beryllium dating is very similar to the more famous carbon dating that paleontologists use to find the age of fossils. To make a long story short, exposing a certain kind of rock to the atmosphere causes it to start making very tiny amounts of an isotope called beryllium. So by measuring how much beryllium is present, you can tell how long ago that rock was pushed up out of the ground. The glacier picked up that rock somewhere way inland, so under the glacier. It traveled in the ice, so no beryllium is being produced. It drops it off on that hill, which we call a moraine. Then as soon as the ice sheet retreats, that rock is now exposed to the atmosphere, and beryllium is being produced in that rock. And so if we can uh, measure the total amount of beryllium, it can tell us how long that rock has been exposed to the atmosphere. And that tells us when the ice sheet was last at that position. So, you know, currently on West Greenland, there's a big swath of ice-free land. So on one side, there's the ocean. On the other side, there's the current ice sheet. And in between, it's just ice-free landscape. And so what we do is we collect these sorts of samples from all along that landscape between the ocean and the modern ice margin. If we make enough of these measurements, we can tell people, okay, in the past when it was as warm or maybe slightly warmer than today, the ice sheet retreated at this rate. And the idea is 
okay, the ice sheet retreated, let's say 100 meters per year. Is that something we can expect moving forward? Now, this process is not exactly easy. It involves isolating tiny pieces of pure quartz from huge rock samples and then sending them through a particle accelerator. But it is relatively straightforward. You find the samples and then you test them. It only tells you, though, information about when an ice sheet was larger than it is now. When it gets really tricky is when you're trying to find information about when an ice sheet was smaller than it is now, because then the samples you're after are buried somewhere deep under the ice. When that ice sheet was smaller than today, it actually left the same clues on the landscape that I was mentioning before. So it leaves these moraines that mark the former limits of the ice margin. But when the ice sheet regrows, it runs all of that over and smothers out the record. And so in this way, it's really hard for us to come up with sort of direct measures of what an ice sheet may have looked like when it was smaller than today. But getting at this buried data is exactly what Dr. Young and his team are finding a way to do. We're drilling through ice sheets to collect samples of rock located under ice sheets. But this really wasn't possible until the last few years because we've sort of just had the capacity to make these measurements. You know, so I'm really amazed when I look at this and just think about it that it like actually works. That we're able to like tell so much about ice sheet and glacier history from measuring these isotopes. Like it blows my mind sometimes that the system works and it works so well. And in this work, he was able to find something really unusual for climate science these days. A tiny little bit of good news. Uh, in the past, the ice sheet has retreated quite quickly, which is to some degree to be expected. But what is somewhat surprising is that during past periods of warmth, um, these periods were interrupted by very brief cold events. So in geologic time, when I say brief, I'm talking 100, 200 years cold snap. But they interrupted sort of a climate that is similar to today. So we consider today sort of a, a warm climate. And so classically, people have believed that, you know, if an ice sheet's retreating, it has a lot of inertia. You need a very significant climate event for that ice sheet to so-called feel that event. So the idea being that, you know, a 100 or 200 year climate event simply isn't enough time for the ice sheet to really respond to that. And so what we found is that even though the ice sheet was retreating very quickly uh, around you know, 10 to 8,000 years ago, uh, the ice sheet actually stopped and paused twice during that overall retreat in response to very short-lived uh, cold periods. And so that was a pretty, I think, surprising find for us. What that may mean is that if we are able to get our act together and somehow bring the world's temperature back down to where it's supposed to be, these ice sheets might recover more quickly than we had previously thought they would. And really, our best hope for moving forward in the great unknown of man-made climate change is to do exactly what all three of these researchers are working so hard to do, to understand as clearly as we can what might happen, so we'll be as prepared as possible for what does happen. And the important work of all three of these scientists and dozens more like them, has been given an immeasurable boost by being recognized by the Blavatnik Awards. 
Here's Dr. Young again, followed by Dr. Anderson and Dr. Anderegg. I think it was nice because it gave sort of our field a little bit more exposure than I think we're used to getting. I mean, it was a huge surprise and it was a big change in that it, I think it definitely increased my self-confidence and it gave my lab and my area uh, a lot of exposure on campus and very positive exposure. Receiving the Blavatnik Award was a, an amazing honor and a really wonderful experience. And just to really be honored as a young scholar, as a, uh, I was then a postdoctoral researcher, uh, is really pretty unique. I think it's incredibly important to recognize young scientists and to inspire them. And, and for me, that the, the Blavatnik Award certainly has really done that. Tune in again to an upcoming episode of the podcast to hear more stories about how Blavatnik Award honorees are driving the next generation of scientific innovation. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. It was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with scientific and administrative oversight by Dr. Brooke Grindlinger and Kamala Murphy. Special thanks to the experts we interviewed for this episode, Dr. William Anderegg of the University of Utah, Dr. Nicholas Young of Columbia University, and Dr. Robert Anderson of City College of New York, City University of New York. Some of the excerpts used in this episode were drawn from the 2017 Blavatnik Science Symposium, held at the Academy on July 17th and 18th, 2017. It was jointly presented by the Academy and the Blavatnik Family Foundation. You can watch and listen to all the presentations given at that event via an Academy e-briefing. Just go to nyas.org and click on e-briefings under News and Publications. nyas.org is also where you can go for information about the Academy and all of its programs, as well as to listen to other podcasts. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media at NYA Sciences on Twitter and Instagram or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.